Welcome to a brand new episode of Outliers. I'm your host, Daniel Scriffer. On Outliers, every week I sit down with an incredible entrepreneur or investor to decode what they've mastered and identify the ideas, mental models, and cheat codes we can all put to work in our own lives. But this episode is a little bit different. Each month, we dedicate one episode to what we call a masterclass, which is a deep conversation about something outside of business that can help us all understand the world more deeply. And today, we couldn't be more excited to share our latest masterclass with Kevin Kelly all about Asia and Kevin's new book, Vanishing Asia, which features over 1,000 pages with 9,000 images from his hundreds of trips to remote places in Asia over the last 49 years. What's more, Kevin launched this book on Kickstarter, and there's still a week to back this project and get a copy of this book for yourself at a massive discount to the retail price. If you're interested after listening to this episode, visit outliers.fm for the show notes and click on the link to back Vanishing Asia on Kickstarter. This conversation is special for many reasons. We go deep on Kevin's process of building this book and how he got down from 200,000 images to just 9,000. We talk about why he decided not to print this book in Hong Kong due to new restrictions from the Chinese government. And we discuss his favorite memories and what he took away from documenting the vanishing world of old Asia and the rise of the Asian century as Asia takes its place as the gravitational center of the world in the next 100 years. As always, for links to everything discussed in the full transcript of this episode, visit outliers.fm and click on the show notes link for this episode. And please, if you enjoy this episode, go and back Vanishing Asia by Kevin Kelly on Kickstarter. It's an incredible book and I've got my own copy. And now let's jump into my conversation with Kevin Kelly. Kevin, I am so excited to have you on the podcast for a second time. And I just wanted to start off by saying congratulations because you launched this campaign for Vanishing Asia I believe just a handful of weeks ago, and you've already got $410,000 raised out of a $75,000 goal with 1,600 plus backers. What has that been like? (laughs) It's a full-time job. That's what it's like. (laughs) I always tell people, yes, be prepared to have one person working full-time if you have a Kickstarter. It's not my first. And I was ready for that. And I've been actually giving my time and trying to answer comments and questions and doing the social media stuff and the promotion. This is all in the service of this book, which is a insanely oversized book. It's actually so big that I had to divide it into three bigger books, <laughs> three big books, three volumes. So the whole thing is 1,080 pages. And so this is the book, the Vanishing Asia book, is the result of my 49 years of photographing in remote parts of Asia. And... I have a Kickstarter to kind of try and share those images because I began before the age of Instagram and only recently have been sharing them, even though I've been accumulating them for many decades. I am now trying to share this in a way that captures the differences, the energy, the beauty, and the invigorating spirit of an Asia that unfortunately is disappearing. And we can talk about that, but that's what the book is. We will link to the Kickstarter in the show notes, and we're actually going to try to fast track this episode and get it out next week. So anyone that's listening and is interested can go and support the project, get a copy of the book, or even get just a hand-signed page. So I'm curious, you had that initial $75,000 goal. Obviously, you have far surpassed that. And I mean, it seems like it's going to raise 500000 600000 before it closes. Was that surprising to you? Yes and no. So I had done a earlier book, 20, 
years ago, and it was published by Tashin, and they sold 30,000 copies of that book. So I was feeling that there was some thousands of people that I could connect with. And in this kind of narrative, I should also mention that I had this idea 10 years ago or more, 12 years ago, of the thousand true fans. And we can talk about that in detail. But in general, it was this idea that if you have direct contact with your audience, you don't need to have a million of them to have some success. You need a million if you have studios and publishers and labels involved in between you and the audience. But if you as a creator actually have direct contact with your fans, then those numbers are much smaller and they're closer to in the thousands. And so my hope was that I could connect with my thousand true fans. And even though I've been writing about it for a long time, I'd never really kind of tested that idea. So my kind of interior goal was to find at least a thousand of them because then it would definitely work. I set the number of the Kickstarter goal even smaller than that because I'm conservative and it's an all or nothing. So I wanted to be sure that I at least captured enough. And it was kind of like the number of the minimum was kind of like enough to do it if I also counted on the sales from Amazon later on. In other words, if I counted both those and then the ones I would get if I released it to the public, then I could do it. A thousand get me closer to being able to just do it on the Kickstarter alone. And if I get another thousand for 2000, then I'm really covered to do it, even just if I didn't sell any more at all. And so that's sort of where we are. The other thing, too, is I'd done a previous Kickstarter for a graphic novel, an oversized graphic novel book. And this was in the early days of Kickstarter, and we were killed by not remembering or accounting for the shipping costs of this oversized book and the returns that we get because when people got a damaged book and sending it, we had to send it twice. So I sort of packed in a little bit of slack in here to kind of cover for the fact that this is a 27-pound monster and just shipping that, even in the U.S., is expensive and there will be returns and stuff. So it's sort of, I need a minimum to print at the cost that we think this is going to go. And in full disclosure, I should say, we had a little bit of a, I mean, another reason why I'm not like kind of rejoicing in the money bags is because originally I was going to print this in China, where I have printed in the past, and they have the best prices, and that's kind of what we calculated on. And then in the middle of the campaign, I learned that Hong Kong, where this was going to be printed, has recently been kind of absorbed by mainland China in a kind of Hong Kong was kind of a freewheeling, democratic kind of place, and now it's not. And so one of the things is is that now anything printed in China has to undergo the same censorship that something that would be distributed in China. Oh, wow. And so my book was put through the censors, and it didn't pass. Even though it's just photos. So I like, well, well there's captions. <laughs> there's captions and there's maps. Maps have to go to a special map censoring agency in China, and they're concerned about the contested border along India and China, and they're concerned about how you describe Taiwan. And that's part of the problems I had with my captions is I had Taipei, Taiwan. And there was like, well, Taiwan is part of China. Yeah, it should be Taipei, China. <laughs> and I said, well, I am not going to change anything. And so we have to leave China and go print somewhere else, which changes the price. So all that's to say that what this has done is kind of give me a relief, a little bit of 
I can relax a little bit. Not only is it going to happen. (laughs) Because, yeah, I can now have covered for the emergencies. I've covered for printing somewhere outside of China. I've covered for the inevitable returns. And I don't have to rely on secondary additional sales later on in Amazon. If we get some more of those, that's great. But I don't need those to actually make the printing costs. I love that you brought up the concept of a thousand true fans because I did want to spend some time on that because it's a little spooky to me that the number is slightly over a thousand kind of backers today. And it seems like this is your foray into being a creator. You're offering something on Kickstarter with a direct relationship to your audience. I'd love to explore a little bit more. You talked about that if you have direct contact and you're able to communicate directly with your audience that a thousand true fans works, but if you add all these intermediaries, it doesn't. Talk about that and give a little bit more color there because I think it's really interesting and is applicable today. The premise, again, I first wrote about this in 2008 or so, and it was kind of a dawning idea that I had kind of carried around my head for a while, which is that this new technology, and at that time, it wasn't really even social media, it was just the internet, kind of disintermediated the audience and that you could communicate with them directly. And that if you kind of calculated how many fans you would need if you got all their money directly to you and you weren't paying anybody in between, if you imagined what I termed a true fan as somebody who was an avid true fan and bought whatever you produced, If you were a singer, they'd travel 200 miles to see you sing at a house concert. If you were an author, they'd buy the hard copy and the audible and the paperback. If you were a photographer, they'd bought the signed print and your book, whatever. So there was a sense of they were being true fans. And if you could get $100 from them every year, if you produced enough, and $100 times 1,000, that's $100,000. That's a livelihood. It's not a fortune, but it's a livelihood for a creator. And of course, then there was the secondary kind of concentric circles of almost true fans and the other fans that would add to that. So that was the theory. And at the time I wrote it, there was very few people, examples that I could find of someone who originated in that. There were lots of examples in the 2008 of people who had kind of started off professionally and with the help of publishers or labels and had moved into depending on fan, but there wasn't anybody organically coming up only with a thousand true fans. Since that time, there are hundreds, if not thousands of people who have done that, and partly because they're relying on social media, which came along and kind of facilitated that to a degree that I was maybe not even imagining. And so that's the premise is that if you could get $100 from a 1,000 fans, then you could make your living doing it. Now, if you're a duet, if you're a duo, if you've got a team, you've got to multiply that number by however. And the point that I always emphasize, and we were talking earlier about my Kickstarter full-time job, is that the cost of this method is that you have to give some of yourself to interact with your fans. You have to keep them happy, you have to engage with them, you have to deal with the problems and this stuff. And so it's another job. And not every creator either is wired to do this in terms of the personality or wants to do this. They may be a painter and says, I don't want to deal with fans, I just want to paint every day. Here's my agent, they're going to deal with it. I'll give you whatever it is that you want, I'll pay you, but I don't want to have to spend my day dealing with fans. 
and that's fine. That's legitimate. So I'm not suggesting that everybody do this way. I'm just saying this is an option for you. And as many things, there'll be hybrids. So I publish many things with a publisher from New York. I do self-publishing as well and everything in between. And so this is, for me, not the only option. This is one option and it was a new option for me. And it's incredibly engaging and really fantastic, but it takes a lot of time. And so you have to be kind of ready for that. I'm not too surprised to hear that. I was just going to add one other follow-on point too, which maybe you can add a little bit of color if this sparks any thoughts for you. But I read a fascinating article yesterday. I'm blanking on the name of the musician, but it was around this same concept. And basically it was the story of this female rock star who had previously released an album through a label and got about $52,000 in sales. And so anyone looking at her as an artist would think that an album for her is worth about $50,000. And the next time she inverted that model, did the direct to all of her fans model, and also adopted the kind of similar but different to Kickstarter where you have different scales, different prices at which people can back you. Tears. I think they yeah, call them tears. tears. It was similar to that, but I think it was more like the Radiohead kind of give your own price model. And she ended up releasing her next album, giving away a handful of things at different dollar values and collecting over a million dollars. So not only is it a way to engage directly with your fans and earn your livelihood off of them and kind of remove some intermediaries, but it can also just generate massively <laughs> higher earnings because you're engaged with them and engage more emotionally. Absolutely. I have publishing relationships with, say, well, now it's called Penguin Random House, I think. They've all kind of keep <laughs> aggregating and it's hard to keep track. But in any case, for a sale of a book, I might get a dollar in royalties per book. So you have to sell a lot of books to see something substantial. Whereas if you were going to self-publish a book and then you could sell it for, any, I don't know, if you got even $20 a book after your expenses that's huge compared to a royalty in New York. But again, it's another job. And so I actually, again, just being transparent, I actually try to have Vanishing Asia published again, not published, but have Tashin publish it again. They published my first book long ago. But they came back and said it was just going to be too expensive, even for them. Just because it's a photo book, like a large format photo book? just how big it is and sort of the amount that they would have to charge for it. They felt that it wasn't going to work. And I actually went to a second art book publisher, Fiden, who were very, very interested and again, very gracious, but they were saying the numbers just don't work for us. So I wanted to have them publish it because I wouldn't really get any money really from it, but I didn't want to have to work on <laughs> a Kickstarter for two months full time. So yes, in the end, you can definitely maybe even do better, but you have to count your hours in some ways. Or if you do count your hours, you should put that into the equation. And for many people, especially when you're starting out, you don't have another option. And so this way of starting from the ground with your fans is really fantastic. And a thousand is something where you can almost handle remembering everybody's names if you were really working at it and engaging you with each one one by one. And if you had a thousand, if you could gain one new fan a day, then it would just take you a couple of years to accumulate a thousand of them. 
And I will say one other thing about this theory that I think is really kind of interesting, and that is, is that a thousand true fans. So if you assume that that's possible, and again, it's not just Kickstarter, it's like Patreon. Again, I wrote the piece before Patreon kind of started. And Substack. <laughs> Substack and all these things. There's lots of tools and mechanisms to do this. The next thing we're going to see very soon is a return to blogging with blogs that have a paywall that aren't individual one by one, because who wants to keep track of it, but having kind of, again, like a system-wide platform where you are basically paying to read people's work on a blog. When we have a thousand true fans, what that means in today's world is that even if your idea is appealing to only one in a million people with a billion audience worldwide, that means you can have a thousand true fans. There could be a thousand people on the planet who will find every single weirdest, strangest idea that only appeals to one in a million people. So even if your thing only appeals to one in a million people, you can still find a thousand of them on the planet. Now, that match, finding them or having them find you, that's the next set of tools that I think we're going to continue to develop over this next couple of decades is how do we make sure that, that you can find that person in Jakarta who is interested in your thing? How can they make sure that they know about it when everyone else in the world is, has something that they're making? And so that kind of matching problem is something that we can work on. But when that happens, I think then we'll really see the rise of the thousand true fans. So it sounds like from just your perspective, we're in the very early inning still of a thousand true fans truly being a model that works globally, given people that want to blog or create podcasts or do kind of anything, create videos. Yes, we're just at the beginning. And I am so excited by this. I mean, in addition to the sub stacks and the Patreon and social media, I spend way too much of my time on YouTube. And there's just something going on in YouTube in the way that the speed and the acceleration at which people are coming up with a new idea, sharing it, and other people taking what they have figured out and then making improvements on it and sharing it. And it's just phenomenal. And it's not just in makeup tutorials and the guys in the garage. It's brain surgeons and it's people working in the highest tech. It's happening across the the culture. And I think that, and what it comes next with the augmented reality stuff, that combined with things like Patreon and the other tools of financing this bottom-up sharing, this passion economy, they sometimes call it, I think is very powerful. And I think we're just at the very, very beginnings of it. I want to ask one question that can maybe give some people listening that are trying to pursue this model, maybe a little bit of kind of insight or, or guidance. And then we can switch over to process because I want to talk about the process of building this book because it sounds incredible. But my question just really quickly is for someone listening, I mean, I've heard both sides of the argument on is for someone who's wants to pursue this creator route, wants to find their thousand true fans. And I think it's a fascinating idea you gave of just thinking about finding one person in a million and if you can do that now, just given the scale of the internet, you can build that following. But there's often like people try to approach it from two different angles. And one is, well, how is what I'm offering differentiated 
from what I'm aware of. And then, then another is just saying, I'm not going to focus at all on trying to do anything overly clever with differentiation. And I'm just going to try to hone in and get better at better at kind of what's unique about my take and just try to embody, I guess, my approach better and better. Any feedback along those lines for people that want to pursue that kind of creator approach? I think you're focusing on the exact right part. There is a proverb that I've heard attributed to different people, but here's my version of it, which is don't try to be the best. Try to be the only. The only kind of trumps the best. Be the only. And here's another version of that is if at all possible, you want to be doing something that nobody has a name for what it is that you're doing. You have trouble describing it to people because there's not a name for it. So that's a sign that you are working in the territory of the only. And so that's a high bar. It's a hard place to start off, and it may take your life to arrive there. That's okay. Most students, and I do this all the time, is when I'm starting out, I'm just going to imitate the masters. I'm just going to outright, blatantly, unashamedly copy the masters just to see if I can do it. And you'll learn a tremendous amount, and then you'll get it out of your system. So it's hard to kind of start in being alone. There occasionally are some rare people who are very clear about it. And part of the reason why it's hard is that you don't know what your only is. You don't know what you're best at. And the only way to get there is to kind of keep doing things and keep making things and keep trying stuff, knowing that you're going to fail forward. And in paying attention, huge attention to what you like, what's easiest for you, what seems natural, how other people respond, and then you'll kind of, over time, move towards that which is authentic to you. And so it's the better you know yourself, the better or quicker you'll get there. And I'm a writer, and one of the things that I do when I'm writing all the time is I'll write a sentence, and then I'll say, do I really believe that? Even the language that I'm using, is this a cliche? Am I saying this because I've heard this somewhere else? Is it just easy to say, or do I really, really believe that sentence? And if not, then what is it that I really think? And so it's a process because I write not what I think. I write to find out what I think. I love that question because it's like putting up a mirror to your creative process. And it is, I imagine, you will discover very often that you're like, no, I'm just saying that because it's something people say. <laughs> people say it's a saying that is incredibly common, which you're offering nothing. Yeah, a huge amount of what we say in everyday life and a huge amount of what we write and a huge amount of like if you're doing painting or if you're doing photography, you're kind of doing what you see other people doing. And it's hard to kind of figure out what it is that you can do differently or want to do differently. And I think it's a matter of quantity and volume. I'm a huge believer in the process of generating lots of things as a way of getting where you want to go. Most of it, which is probably stuff you won't keep or don't want even anybody to see, but that's okay. You need to do that to get to the point. And there's a kind of a famous story about two photography teachers, an assignment that they gave. And it was like a photography class. And there are two ways to be graded. And I believe they gave the students a choice. You can either 
will grade you on the number of photographs you take in the year, like thousands or whatever it is. You have to give me finished process in these very, very large numbers. And depending on how many you give me, I'll give you a grade. Or you can give me a few of them of your best work, and I'm just going to grade those one or two. And some students did each. And what he said was, by far the best photographs of that seminar always came from the students who tried to produce most, even though they weren't trying to make masterpieces. They were just trying to go for quantity. And so there is something about doing art by the pound that helps you try enough so that you can begin to kind of awaken those areas where you are kind of being only you. I found that one really helpful way to kind of invert that a little bit or look at it from a different perspective is to think about it less about producing and more about kind of the feedback that you're getting. And that feedback can be, so use that photography example. When you think about feedback, yes, part of that feedback is sharing it with the world and seeing what that reception is and what people gravitate towards or what people really like that you produce. But another piece of it is just feedback with yourself, feedback of observing that work. And if you think about do you want to get one piece of feedback every two months or do you want to get a little bit of feedback every day? Obviously, the answer starts to get really clear <laughs> really quickly. My last book I wrote out loud, basically, on my blog, and I recommend that to writers all the time for the kind of writing that I do, which is nonfiction. I have a friend who made a living writing his science fiction stories, chapter by chapter, posting them as he was writing them. So writing out loud It's a tremendous way to get feedback on what you're doing. You're writing pieces, writing chapters, whatever it is, and posting. It's almost like, why would you not do that, is my feeling right now, because you get people suggesting things that you hadn't thought of, people to talk to or work that you didn't know existed, corrections where you actually say incorrect, wrong, factual things. Just so much that is available if you're willing to kind of endure and see it constructively, that I just highly recommend it. I love that piece of advice and writing out loud. And I think that's a perfect segue to talking about process. And one of the reasons that I wanted to explore this with you is, so it sounds like I'll just throw out a couple kind of things that I picked up just doing research. It sounds like you've been working on this for, so you've been taking photos for more than 40 years. You've been working on distilling those down into this kind of final book form for 10 years. And you started out with over 200,000 photos and got down to 9,000. All of that sounds utterly impossible I think, for most people to imagine that scale and working through it. Talk to us about that process. And was it seamless? Was there fits and starts? Just what was that like for you? Yeah. So I've actually been photographing for 49 years and accumulating. And of course, in the very, very beginning, most of those images were on film and talking about feedback or lack of it. In the early days of film, there's no screen on the back of your camera. I was adjusting the exposures manually and I was very poor. So I would mail back finished film to my mom who put it in her freezer, would wait until I would return and then get a job and earn enough money to develop the film. So each frame that I took was basically the equivalent of today, $5 for a shot, flick, click. And the point of it is is that, again, I was accumulating these images and didn't really have much way to share them. And then I kind of slowly switched to digital when it was sort of crummy because I never had a professional level camera I wasn't doing that much. I was an amateur. 
But I began to digitize in the 2000s, I guess. I began to digitize my slides. And as I was digitizing them slowly each year, I would process the best ones. Process meaning that every photo, particularly ones that scan, needs some attention. I didn't have enough time to do the kind of full-fledged Photoshopping or post-processing that most images get today. I just didn't have that kind of time. So I would do a minimum amount just to kind of bring it up to snuff. And I would do that. And then I was taking new images. I found out that for every day of photographing, there was like two days of processing. So after a bit, I would travel most likely in the later years for business trips. And I always piggyback on personal travel to go photograph on top of that business trip. And so after I'd come back from a business trip, I'd have stuff that I would process right afterwards. So I kind of kept up over the years with the new stuff from the 2000s on by just doing it as I went along as a kind of a passion project in addition to my business of writing about the future of technology. So the processing was all done. And then I took a year to lay it out. And I did the layout and design myself using the new software tools, the magic of Adobe InDesign, which allows anybody to be a filmmaker or magazine designer. And I designed it so that every single page of those 1,000 pages, basically, not every single one, but very close, had its own design. It wasn't the format. Each individual page was designed differently. And that took a while, but actually the thing that took the most time was I wrote a caption for every 9,000 image. Sometimes those captions was literally just identifying where it was. But believe me, after 49 years, my memory is not what it used to be. Very (laughs) difficult. Just trying to identify where everything was way too often sent me down the rabbit hole of Wikipedia where I'm trying to figure out what was that temple. There is one Indian temple that I'm not 100% sure where it is. And I've done tons of research, writing to expert in South Indian temples, asking him if he could identify this. So anyway, that was where most of the work went to because I unfortunately did not keep a journal or records of where I took things. Um, I moved too fast. I don't know. Something about my brain doesn't work that way. I know there are very good photographers who are meticulous about keeping track of things. I am not one of them. So I had to reconstruct things. In the later years, I actually carried a GPS tracking device. And then in the last three, four years of my travels, I found out that my phone, even if I didn't have the data on, because I wouldn't turn the data on, but even without the data on, you can still make a GPS log from your phone. And so I have an app on my phone that would just basically track and make a GPS. And that was hugely, hugely helpful in reconstructing where photographs were. Yeah, no more emailing experts, which is a, which is a nice yes. change. <laughs> so just to try to describe too for people listening, I mean, the photos are absolutely gorgeous. And what's amazing about the page layout, and I'm glad you talked about it a little bit there, is 
I've seen plenty of books that obviously it's one photo per page, which is wonderful. I've seen plenty of books where it's a grid and you, it's just a really wonderful, very fluid form factor where there's a bunch of these kind of detail shots that are smaller and these more sweeping epics that are bigger and it's very textural. Talk about how you got to that and why that felt right. So I grew up with black and white photography the Ansel Adams school of making these monuments, these timeless monuments, which was always my dream. And I worked in large format. And when I started photography in the 60s, the only way that you could do photography was you were the chemist. You had to develop the film yourself. You had to develop the prints in a dark room. It was very technical. As I said, you're doing manual exposures. The optics are all transparent. And so that kind of photography big black and white landscape was my goal. And when you do a book like that, you, of course, there's a single image on a page and it's a monument. A lot of my images, all these images are in color, but a lot of them could stand in that way as a single image. But what I observed was that, I'm not sure where I had the, I think it was in Google Photos. Google Photos would show all your photos in this dynamic, self-organizing mosaic. And I just loved that. There was something that happened that transformed each image from a kind of trumpet blaring to a single note in like a melody. And so I started to see this as a symphony where each individual photograph was a note in this music and I wasn't just going to have one note by one note I was going to have a symphony going on and so that's the model that's the metaphor that I was working with is like okay I'm making a symphony in this book and each one of these photographs is not a precious thing that has to stand alone with a white border no it's a note in a symphony that you'll get you the sense of Asia as a continent and so I began doing that. And after I was completely done, I discovered that Edward Tufte, the design guru, who is sort of leading the charge in visual display of information, had and developed a whole app for making mosaics. He has a whole theory about the presentation of information in this mosaic. And that was where I got the term from. And so I had already finished the book when I saw that. So there is some theory, I think, or some logic about what happens when you see images that are arranged in this way. And to make that work, you really need a certain amount of real estate. It doesn't work on your phone. It doesn't work on a tiny screen. You need to have a big feel, almost like a wall, to make that work where your brain is making these associations between the different images. And there's something happening in your brain unconsciously as you kind of assemble something from all these images that are related, but not the same. I love that metaphor you gave of individual images being like a trumpet blast versus a symphony. And you've done a masterful job because even watching the video on Kickstarter, watching you flip through the pages, it's wonderful. And I think the only other thing that I would add is, especially for a travel book where obviously myself, anyone that's reading this, we haven't been to those places. And I think your impression can get colored positively, negatively, or just ambiguously by seeing one image. But if you see a whole bunch of details, it starts to assemble something that's three-dimensional, which is kind of lovely. It's very immersive. And that's what I would say about the book is that 
because of the scale of the book, when you sit there and turn the pages, you are immersed. You're having the closest you can have to immersive experience without being in VR in these places. And there are a thousand, I think I might have sent you a sample book which had 50 pages. Okay, there's 1,030 other pages like that. (laughs) I mean, it's mind-boggling. It's It's mind-boggling. And I know, having done it myself, it will take half a day or at least three hours or more to actually just literally just page through the book, not reading any of the captions. There's like a three-hour journey just to page through this experience. And it was constructed to be an experience rather than to be a monument. This is going to be somewhat of a wild tangent, but just to share. So I bought the book and we have a handful of books like this at home, or you may not agree, but I would fit this into a category of books. We have some, a collection of books at home that are really for, I mean, I love them. So my background's in design. I just love taking in and seeing different colors and patterns and, but also for our kids as a way to kind of discover different parts of the world. We've got a three-year-old, we have a three-month-old. They're not at the point where we're going to just hand them the book. It's going to be a few more years, but we have these wonderful books at home. I've got one all about Victorian dress. It's like 300 pages of different Victorian outfits. I've got one all about drawings, these like amazingly beautiful drawings back in the early days before photos existed, where people were trying to document the natural world. And I love stuff like that, especially for kids, just because it can take them out of the little world that they're in and expand that in an incredible You're way. absolutely right. I did a smaller book, as I mentioned, with Tashin, and I can't tell you the number of people who told me that their kids love it and they just want to watch it again and again. When our kids were small, I had some photo books like that. I had one on mammals or animals maybe from National Geographic because it was just kind of like, it was like, again, a mosaic of pictures of all these animals. And that was just endlessly fascinating for the kids just to kind of go through what's this. And they're coming back. They've seen it again, but you know how kids are. They like to repeat. And so that, I agree that these kind of visual anthologies really work on kids in a way that we've forgotten as adults. I'm glad that that makes sense for you too. And I'm not surprised at all that you've gotten that feedback. So yeah, no one should be offended if you produce a book and people say, it's, I love my kids, love it. <laughs> yeah. It's not a negative. No, 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 context. not at all. That's the <laughs> highest praise for me. <laughs> but it does even suggest that I would love to have, well, the problem with this book is that the kids will not be able to even hold, no, it. hold it. They may yeah. be able to lay on it, <laughs> but maybe there is some, I don't know how to make a kid-friendly version that won't kill them if it dropped on them. But yeah, maybe it's a parent-child experience. So I had one question, and this is just a shot in the dark, because the amount of images that you've taken is just massive at 200,000, and you've pared that down to 9,000. But I know for myself, on the trips that I've been on, there's always a few things that just really resonate with me, because they capture a moment, or they capture an experience, or a feeling. Are there a couple of pictures that are like that for you, and can you kind of narrate those or talk about them? Again, I started photographing. I went to Asia instead of going to college in 1972. was my first trip out of the U.S. I'd hardly even been on a plane before. I'd never eaten Chinese food or even held chopsticks. I was so clueless about where I was going. I was going at invitation of a friend to visit him. He was learning Chinese in Taiwan. So I didn't have much in my mind going on. And now I've forgotten what your question was. Oh, yeah, just the couple of images that really resonate for you. Here's what I wanted to say. Very early on, I started to kind of have in my mind the image that I was hunting for. 
the image that for me was like the ideal image, the image that I wanted to see that represented what I was seeing. And that image in general was a scene that had a foreground, middle ground, and background where everything in that scene spoke of that time and particularly that place. It could not have been taken anywhere else. You look at that and you would see the costume, the artifacts, the background, the lighting, everything would say that could have only been taken in Chingar, Kashmir, and you couldn't tell when it was taken. It could have been a thousand years ago or today. So that, to me, was the kind of trophy image that I was looking for. And occasionally I would be lucky enough to arrive at one of those, and meaning that there was something going on and all the conditions were perfect and I was there and I was ready and I got it. And then that's assuming or not to mention the fact that the house will have to be cinematic or photographically perfect in the sense of the composition. So it was kind of like the composition was like, that was kind of the easy part. The hard part was like being there on time at the right thing and having everything ready and all that. And then I can bring in my skill as an artist, but the hard part was being there. And so there was a scene that I have, I photograph a lot of this for weeks of a game in Afghanistan called Buskaji, which is translated as goat ball. It's this game of horses. There's maybe hundreds of horses and they're riders and they're competing, dragging this ball, which is really just a carcass of an animal. It's very brutal. And there was one scene where it was on the plains and there was mountains behind and they're all in costume costume meaning this is what their everyday wear was but they had turbans on and their cloaks the lighting was perfect and it was like that was afghanistan in 1970s it was never really going to happen that way again they still have games but their trucks are wearing t-shirts there's power lines going across they're no longer just mud huts they've gotten steel sheds so it's a different world. But I was lucky enough to get that one. That's one. And there's an image of a more recent one. I was in India, Kerala, attending some festivals of elephant processions. And there was drummers. I think they're called temple drummers. They were wearing their sarangis and their lungis, and they've got these drums, and they're in a kind of row. And there's elephants in gold drapes behind them and they're coming through like a village in india and it was like okay everything is there there's the lighting is right the details the instruments are all traditional these elephants which are not going to be doing this forever because of animal rights and it was just like that is south indian kerala that's a timeless picture it could have been done 500 years ago or it could have been done it was just done last year and so That, to me, is sort of what I was looking for, where you could see the texture. You got all the integration of religion and the geography. It's all being reflected, the whole thing, where they were using native materials, and they were using the background, and the colors are in harmony with the vegetation. And so that is what I was looking for, and occasionally I would get one of those. I love the way you describe it. It sounds like you would have made a wonderful film director. (laughs) Just trying to get to that level of detail and get the scene right and get all the details just perfect. There is two terms of photography. There are photographs you take and photographs that you make. And 
what you always want to do is making photographs. But I'm kind of a ninja photographer. The best way to make the kind of photographs I want is you become embedded, is that you arrive somewhere you want to be, you decide to spend a month there, you live with a family, and after two days, they don't even see your camera. You're kind of invisible to them because you're just part of the landscape. That's the best way to get the kind of pictures I'm talking about. That's not how I did it. (laughs) I didn't have time. I'm on a business trip. I've got a week here to do. I have to move fast. So I adopted the ninja where I'm going to take a picture before you even realize I took the picture. So I'm not going to interfere with it, but I'm not going to arrange anything. But I'm making it in the sense that I am going to stand right here because I know and I'm going to move right here. I'm going to wait maybe an hour because I know that this is where it's going to happen. I know that this is what's going to happen. I know this is how it's going to do. I'm going to be over here by the light where the room is. And so I'm going to position myself and I'm going to make the photograph in that way. You know what you're trying to capture and you're willing to be patient and then you're willing to kind of let all the right factors hopefully come yes, to play and get something exactly. magical. So I want to talk a little bit about just your experiences traveling. Because one thing that was remarkable to me learning more about the story is you dropped out of college. This was in 1972. You go on this trip to Asia and two thoughts kind of bubbled up for me. One was, I'm just going to make an assumption here, but it sounds like at that point, maybe you were excited to go to Asia because it was totally new, but you didn't know just how important and profound a part of your life this was going to be. So I want to talk a little bit about that. But then a second one kind of related is, so the title of the book is Vanishing Asia. And at this point, you've cataloged nearly 50 years of just kind of Asia's progression in a lot of ways into the modern world. But I imagine that that label, Vanishing Asia, didn't pop up until some point in time. And for a while, it was just capturing Asia. And at some point, you realized that it was changing very rapidly. Can you talk a little about both of those, kind of your first experience and when you realized that Asia was vanishing? I really did not have a very deliberate plan. I had no forethought about what this would be like or that I would even ever return, certainly on my first trip. I had no idea. But I think once I arrived... There were so many things about it, about Asia. And of course, again, I didn't even know. I was arriving in Taiwan. I had no idea whether this was representative or anything. I wasn't thinking about anything beyond Taiwan. But there was this, there were so many things that were different about it, including a kind of, I would call it a kind of transparency that was very different from where I grew up, which is that people lived on the street. I mean, literally, not being homeless, but they were kind of like they'd have garage-like houses where they would just be working kind of on the street. They would take over the street to work, to do welding, to cook. There was like street food. I had no idea there was such a thing as street food when I went. I mean, again, the ignorance that I had, it was kind of hard to believe right now today with the internet where you can research things and you see things from around the world. There was none of that. So everything was kind of out in the open. And there was this sort of sense of which, oh, you could see how things are done. You could see how the world works. Of course, in Taiwan, like China later on, they were making the things for the U.S., the things that you would buy in the store. Here they were, they were making them on the street. You could watch them, how they were being made. There was a different sense of privacy where it was completely expected and benign just to walk in to this place, which was their home and kind of their workshop and whatever it is, and I'm just walking in. There's no sense of personal space at all that we would have. And so there was this other thing that allowed me to kind of be educated, to learn. So every single day, 
I was learning something new and changing my mind. And that was like, okay, that's addictive. So I'm going to go back to there again and again, as long as I had money. And I'm going to kind of try to capture this. And the third thing that I observed from the day one was how fast things were changing right before my eyes, even my time in Taiwan. I would come back to somewhere that had been a rice paddy a couple of months before, and now it was a factory. Things in the city were being rebuilt constantly. And what they were building wasn't old stuff. It was new. It was like my next trip after Taiwan was Japan. Okay, mind blown. And I was never even in Tokyo. It was happening throughout Japan where the old things were being replaced by not just new things, but by future things. And so from very early on, I saw that that was disappearing. And I understand why it was disappearing. I'm not racked with nostalgia. I don't really have a nostalgia for all the things. Nostalgia in the sense of a kind of a cling to them and a desire to prevent them from vanishing. That's not what this book is about. I am not trying to stop them or save them. There are other people who record things. I'm a big fan of the Jimmy Nelson books, Before They Pass Away, where there's some attempt to maybe like, let's preserve this, let's keep this here. I don't feel that. I understand fully why some of these traditions are disappearing. And I don't think in some cases there's much that we can do to stop them from going away. They probably will never disappear entirely. You may have to subsidize them. That's all that's fine, but that's not my purpose. My purpose is just to record them and to present them to the reader and say, look, these are valid design choices and in them are the seeds for future design choices. These are recurring perennial problems about how we arrange our interior space and what we wear as clothes and those aren't going to go away. And some of the things that people came up with are things that we can return to as ideas or parts of them. And so here I want to document all those design choices as a form of inspiration of seeds to make future designs from. So I was aware that they were vanishing and those traditions are being kind of pushed further and further into little pockets, into remote parts, while the cities of Asia become convergent in kind of an urban, modern, and futuristic cities. You go to Shanghai, it's just amazing. Or Tokyo, the cities in Central Asia being built from the ground up. So I think I was aware of it, and I became interested in documenting it because I realized how fast it was going, although I was not trying to stop it from going. And if I have a superpower, is I have a pretty good nose for feeling and seeing where something was happening in a city, where that kind of little energy, that celebration was going to erupt any minute now. Kind of a spidey sixth sense of like, oh, over there in the other part of the city, I can tell there's going to have a street fair right now. And or I can tell from reading my research that in this area here, they're still retaining some costume. And if they've got the costumes, they have other traditions that they also have saved because the costumes are kind of the first to go. So I can make my way there, and I'm going to record that before it's completely gone.
This is probably going to be a clunky question because it's difficult to kind of form in my mind. But one of the things that I wanted to ask you, because you've documented an incredible array of different cultures that all have different aesthetics, different details, different values. Something that I love and geek out on often is just Japanese culture and Japanese aesthetics. I have a whole book just on the traditional way that Japanese people would kind of bind and package up things, which I think is just absolutely You ever seen Wrapped with Five Eggs? Yes. It's just a book about traditional Japanese packaging using traditional materials. And the classic one is how they wrap five eggs. So I saw in China at markets, there's some pictures in the book of people wrapping eggs that way with straw in five eggs just out on the street. So that's a little note. Yes. Anyway, so go on. I'm sorry. No, I love that. I love that you even know what I'm talking about there. But one of the things that I guess I want to try to ask you, and because you have this, I think, wonderful kind of duality where you're both an optimistic technologist at heart, and you also have this love for kind of ancient culture, ancient beauty. And one of the things that I've tried to think about, I don't have a great answer on, I think you may have some interesting observations on, is how we embrace this optimistic future. And that can be everything from building super modern green buildings that ideally also have some connection to the local culture. And I think architecture is an area where I think architects do an amazing job of actually taking buildings and respecting and embedding in a bunch of these kind of cultural cues that doesn't seem to happen well with clothes. So as an example, as you said, everyone kind of moves to Nikes and t-shirts and you lose all of these cultural things. It's an awkward kind of clunky question, but any just broad thoughts or specific thoughts on how we embrace the future and yet have cultural values and beauty show up in that somehow? It's a really good question. It's a very complicated question, and I'm not even sure I have a good answer or even good prediction. But another way of saying it is, will everything converge in the future, or will we have divergence? Will the culture diverge? And my current thinking on this is that if you have in your mind the pyramid that we call Maslow's hierarchy, which, by the way, Maslow didn't ever draw. It was drawn after his work. But at the base of this pyramid are the large amount of effort that we need to do to get our clothes, clothing, shelter, food. And then as you go up the smaller tiers of the pyramid, there you're kind of becoming more inner-driven, where you are doing things not because of survival, but because of obligations to the social obligations. And then at the very tip, you have your self-actualization, where we were talking earlier about being the only. So at the very, very tip, you're the only. And my kind of rough estimate is that at the bottom levels of Maslow's hierarchy, the basic needs, that we're going to converge around the world. That basically everybody in the world wants to live in an air-conditioned box with Wi-Fi or 5G. And one of the very first things anybody bought in history and didn't make themselves was cloth, machine-made cloth. Because making cloth by hand is so laborious and tedious. And that's the first thing that goes anywhere in the world in traditional cultures is handmade cloth. Because it is so time-consuming. And the benefits of having machine-made cloth, even before you have a metal pot. A knife is another one. A metal knife maybe is first. So the machine-made cloth is second. If you go to any Amazon tribe anywhere in the world, The first thing they get is they want to have a t-shirt. Anyway, so the basic clothing and stuff I think is going to converge, but I think we're going to diverge in what it means to us and what we do, what our occupation is, how we spend our day, the importance of our self-identification. And 
as part of that, we may start to change the kind of clothing that we wear to reflect that, even though we don't have to, or even though we don't always wear it, whatever. So that's kind of my guess. My guess is going to be that in the future, we will converge on some basic things like infrastructural stuff, and that the diversity will show in the kind of the art and expression of that. And one of the questions is like, are we going to have more than one internet? Will there be cultural versions of the internet like China has, where you have firewalls or other kinds of social obligations that are first? And I don't know. That's a really fair question that I think we haven't really answered yet. Will there be cultural differences in automobiles and cars? If there are, the one thing I would suggest is that we're, in general, as a planet, moving away from geographically centered cultures to much more kind of affinity centered cultures where you may identify more with your tribe who's dispersed around the globe than with the people who live next door. So there's still maybe some remnants of geography living in the desert versus the beach, but I suspect in the far future at least that will have very strong cultural ties, but they may be affinity-based rather than geographically based. I think you've got a ton of incredible ideas there. I mean, I love the affinity-centered cultures and the framing of expression and being in a position where you're now focused on self-expression and that kind of meaning. Obviously, as countries and everyone in them works their way up Maslow's hierarchy need that as they kind of go higher up that, hopefully we see that more and more because I think that's something that to me, it gets bleak and somewhat dystopian if in the future there's just bland vanilla all covering the whole world. and we yeah, Everyone's wearing black of, yeah, exactly. all around the world and white t-shirts. Yes. I don't love We that. want some color. I'm hoping that our current fashion with cars, where they're all white or beige, goes away and we look more like the trucks in Afghanistan or the jeepneys in the Philippines where they're just kind of like parties that are on wheels. Why not? Color is free. And actually, what's happening in China, where the size of buildings are screens, and they change. And I think that's, I mean, I just love that. That, to me, is really cool, where you would have a very colorful things. And so cars, I saw some technology in China of flexible screens, and screens meaning like movie screens, that are very thin, and they're going to make a dashboard from it. If you can make a dashboard a screen, you can make the outside of the car a screen. And you see sometimes these vinyl-wrapped cars, but imagine they were a screen-wrapped vehicle. And again, this is what the value of my book is. There's in Georgetown, Penang, Malaysia, there are these bicycles, pedicabs, bicycle-driven taxicabs, pedicabs that are just like the Disney light parade. They're just moving light things and you can kind of see some glimpse of what future vehicles could be where they are just screens moving screens and inside is the people are probably doing vr yeah i think anytime we could take something that's static and make it something that can be used for self-expression and just imagine a city where instead of everything just being single colored cars you've got this amazing kind of pattern work of different vehicles it starts to get really interesting so You've been so gracious with your time and it's been an incredible conversation. I wanted to ask two closing questions. And the first of those, the first question is, so we've talked a lot about 
what your experience has been like spending nearly 50 years in Asia, watching the change, not being nostalgic in the sense of wanting to cling on to it, but also wanting to kind of honor it and remember it, note it down for people to take away from. And I'm curious if at the end of the day, this kind of massive body of experiences for you, what is the core of how that's maybe shaped or changed your outlook on life, your outlook on culture, your outlook on the world? If there's anything there that you can share. By now, I've spent so much time in Asia. I married a Chinese woman. Our kids are bilingual. I'm in California, which is the closest I can live in Asia and still be in the U.S. (laughs) There are actually very few Asian cities I would actually want to live in. Singapore is one of them. But what has changed is this. What I got from my travels was the privilege of being able to visit another century, the 1500s. I had no money, but I had a lot of time. And a willingness, and I came at the right moment where someone with very little money like me could go into areas that in the past would have taken an expedition and support, maybe protection, all kinds of things. But when I was there, you could take a Jeep or you could take a bus. The buses were starting to run into the most remote areas. And for $2, I remember taking an overnight bus from Lucknow, India, into Kathmandu, an overnight bus changing countries, going into the Himalayas, and it was $5. For $5, you could go to Nepal. I had the benefit of being at the right time where I could see the medieval world, where it was affordable for someone with no money, just before it became kind of vanished. Now you can get to all these places very, very easily and cheaply, but they've been altered. So there was this one little moment where I snuck in. And Part of that experience was I got to live in worlds where there was very little technology. So it's kind of different ages. You could kind of go back to the 1800s pretty easily. With some effort, you could go back to the 1500s. And then occasionally into the tribal areas, you could go back way, way back. And some places like in the hill areas of Thailand and Burma or in the Philippines. So in those moments... I had the experience of living without the technology that I grew up with, let alone the ones that was coming in the next years. And I had visceral appreciation for what that brought to people. And it wasn't like happiness per se. People are very adaptable and can adjust to what they have. And so at some level, they were sort of happy, content in that sense. They were living in villages that had organic food and fantastic vistas and this beautiful organic architecture. And they were very strong families and community support. And they had a very clear idea who they were. All those are really very valuable. But they were taking one-way tickets into the city where they were grimy slums. And why were they doing that? Well, because they had the chance to be the only. Because when they were in that village, they had only one choice of what they were going to do, which was they're going to do what their father or mother did. They're going to be either a farmer or a mother. Even if they might have had the abilities or the genius of a Mozart or an Einstein. And when they moved into the city, what they were moving towards were choices and opportunities and possibilities. And Even though the electricity might be uneven, they at least had electricity. 
even though the books were textbooks were missing they had the choice of going to school and going to college and so that's why they were moving in by the hundreds of millions and so when i learned what i got from that was seeing what technology gave us and understanding that yes there was a cost to it there was a price that we pay but the net gain from that was a positive and I've since kind of refined that idea, and as I studied technology more, and as I traveled more, and the way I refine it is to say, I would say that the net gain in a year is only 1%. We may only create 1% more than we actually kind of destroy, but that 1% is enough. That 1% compounded every year is civilization. And so... I arrived at this kind of awareness of what we're getting, even as we destroy things, is that, yes, there's a net gain in choices and possibilities, and that is a net positive, and that's what I am kind of backing. That bigger story, that bigger arc, is what I hold on to, and I got that from traveling in Asia. It's beautifully said, and it's interesting to me that You've obviously lived a life that's been steeped in technology, but you really needed that kind of black and white high contrast of technology and no technology to really have that kind of message peer through. And it's interesting, too, as soon as you said, why were people moving to cities because they had a chance to be the only? It's profound in a lot of ways because it's basically the kind of notion that technology allows us to separate ourselves and truly embark on our own hero's journey or journey into becoming something that's really unique, which is really profound. The thing to emphasize is this giving you the opportunity. It doesn't guarantee that it will happen. It doesn't guarantee equality. It doesn't guarantee a lot of other things. I am the first to point out that technology will invent or create almost as many new problems as solutions. And so every new technology that we invented to solve a problem of a previous one will itself make new and harmful things. And that this is not a utopia. I call this protopia where the pro is in progress, the pro is in proceeding, the pro is in affirmative, as in moving forward, as in prototype early. And so this is one that's, it's a flawed world that has just a little tiny bit more good than bad, but social media will have tremendous new problems. AI, oh my gosh. But there will be just a little bit more net gain because of the opportunities and possibilities that we're creating. And so there's no guarantee that people moving to the city will find themselves, but they have an opportunity that they didn't have before. And that's, to me, worth it. I think it's an amazing perspective. I want to ask one more closing question. And just to set it up a little bit, I want to ask about, so you've traveled to, what was it, 35 countries? In the 49 years of traveling to the end of the road in 35 countries, there was a couple of Asian countries I didn't get to, Iraq. I was banned from Turkmenistan for some reason I can't figure out, but I've seen most of the Asian countries. Yeah, you've seen most of them. Not only are you aware of them, and part of why I want to ask this is something I've really, yeah, I'll just put this on myself, something I've noticed in myself that I'm really trying to work on is just understanding Asia in particular with more nuance. Because I think when a lot of people think of that, they think of India, they think of China, but there's Turkey, there's Iraq, there's 
Turkmenistan, there's an amazing array of different countries or localities you can go visit. So I'm curious, what would you kind of draw attention to as just something that you don't think gets enough attention that people should go see in Asia in general? I talk a lot about my kind of this book, Vanishing Asia, being kind of an ode to otherness. And otherness is sometimes a loaded word. And I don't mean this otherness to kind of like white male guys like me. I mean the fact that, as you might say, the difference between Korea and Turkey, the otherness between Korea and Turkey is almost as much as the otherness between Korea and the U.S. Or Oman and Mongolia in Borneo and the Caucasus. So it's a very vast continent with huge diversity, a huge amount of otherness even between itself. And it's dangerous to generalize. We do it all the time because it's convenient and sometimes only the way we can work. But I see the center of the global culture moving towards Asia, at center in Asia, and eventually even heading towards Africa, which is, there's some adjacency. But I think we're headed into kind of the Asian century. And there's a mathematics at work there, which is there's about one and a half billion Indians and one and a half billion Chinese alone, three billion to the 350 in America, 10 times as much. If you add all the other Asian countries, it's half of the world's population lives in this area, half. And what they think and what they do is going to matter more to the world than what Americans do. This is a very hard lesson that Americans are going to have to wake up to and adjust to. It's going to hurt. We're going through that now. We're going through that now. We've seen just the beginning of it. And the weird, the kind of the Trumpian stuff is just part of that symptom. And we're being dethroned. We, I don't think as American, we're being dethroned from that kind of superpower status, sole superpower status. And it's not going to be pretty. There's no easy, painless way to do this. I think there are better ways to do it than others, but all of them will involve a kind of a demotion of some feeling. And so, like, until now, America has run the internet. We may not get to run the internet anymore. So that's an adjustment coming. And the other side of that is, I think, the cultural production in terms of, like, movies, music, the new gadgets that we all want, I think is going to move to Asia. The ambition, the momentum, the scale of what's happening is simply not understood by people in the U.S. Go to China, ride the super train from Hong Kong to Beijing as it cuts through the country in seven hours, and you will see what's happening. And it's big. It's unstoppable. And we don't want to stop it. That's the whole point, is that there is this move forward. There is a gathering. There is an eruption of creativity and ambition and all the things that we want in the world happening in this huge continent with half the world's population. And so I feel as if we're going to see more things happening sooner than later. And I expect very soon that China, at least, is going to make a device or something, you can make a product that will be the best in the world and everybody in the world, including everybody in the US, wants to have it. Maybe it's an electric car, maybe it's smart glasses, maybe it's something else I don't even know about. But they're going to make it and it's going to be like the Apple, 
the iPhone of the next thing. It's like, yes, that is the best. That's so cool. That's so good. And that's so cheap. I will want that one. And so that'll come completely from something that the Chinese design and make and invent. So that's one hint of what I expect to see in the coming years is the Asian century. And my book is about the cost of what they're leaving behind to achieve that. It's a beautiful note to end on. Thank you so much for your time. This has been an incredible conversation. And I know people listening are going to love it. And we'll make sure in the show notes to obviously link to Kickstarter and link to your website and make sure it's easy for people to be able to go and get this book for themselves. So thank you so much, Kevin. Thank you for giving me time. It's always easier and funner to have a little bit more time to take to relax and doing it. So thank you for your great questions. I really enjoyed my time being here. Thank you so much for listening to Outliers. To explore other episodes and sign up for our free weekly newsletter, visit outliers.fm. 